So let me just refresh people's uh, memory and introduce you, perhaps, for the first time to some elements of the book of Ruth. The setting takes place during the time of the judges. That is a time where there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was rampant immorality. There was just complete individuality. There was really no regard or obedience to God's law. People did whatever it is that they wanted to do and it was just kind of crazy. Not only that, but as the ethics were diminishing, the society was diminishing, people were set against one another, violence was everywhere, justice was no longer being practiced, and the evidence that we live in a broken and fallen world was made um, through the book of Judges. And uh, so the, Ruth, the book of Ruth is set within that time frame, which is very similar to this time in which we live today. And so we can get a lot of application, and you'll see some of it today. That the fact that we live in a broken world, and as you and I know, we, we are well acquainted with the reality of death. We see that there's injustice all over the world. We're hearing of hunger. We're hearing of uh, murder. We're hearing of all kinds of stuff. And for many people, when you hear that, you have to ask yourself the question, where is God in all this? Where, where is God? Is he working? Is he active? Is he concerned at all? And what we talked about last week was two theological truths that help us to understand and answer that question. God is both sovereign and he's providential. What that means is he's sovereign. He's king over all things. He has the utmost and absolute final and supreme authority over all things. And God is also providential, which means that God is in control of all things. God is continually involved with whatever he has created in such a way, if you remember from last week, he powerfully preserves and governs all of his creatures and all of their actions in order to fulfill all of his purposes. Now, why this is a great encouragement to us is because when we're in the midst of sorrow and suffering and pain and tragedy, there's really no benefit to say that God is not sovereign and God is not providentially in control because then there's a, an authority void. And we as human beings are going to fill that void with ourselves. And so we're left at our own disposal to say this pain inflicted upon us, the sorrow we experience, the suffering which is so rampant around the world, it's up to us to solve it. Now there's no person in this room who should have the audacity and arrogance to boast that you can solve the world's problems. And so we need something bigger than ourselves. We need someone bigger than ourselves. We need someone who has all authority. We need someone wise enough to know what to do and loving enough to, to want to do it. And that's exactly where the theological doctrine of sovereignty and providence come in, that God is powerful. God is wise. God is loving. He can do it. So there is no accidents. There is no coincidences. God is in control of all things. We also were introduced to a number of characters. Naomi, whose name means pleasant. And her husband, Elimelech, whose name means my God is king. They had two sons named Malan and Killian, and uh, they decided to go to Moab since there was a famine in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem means a house of bread, and there was no bread in the house of bread, so they took matters into their own hands, went to Moab, a place they should not have. There they experienced the judgment of God. The judgment was upon the people, that's why there was a famine, but also the judgment was upon Elimelech and his family, that's why they died. And so Naomi hears that the Lord had visited his people once again and provided food in Israel. And so she decides to go back. And as she heads back, she is accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. She tells them, you need to go back to what is comfortable, easy, and simple. 
Orpah decides to do that. She heads back to Moab, and you never hear from her again. And yet Ruth clung to Naomi, and they're going to venture into Israel to make a life for themselves. But what's really interesting is Naomi says to Ruth, if you come with me, here's the only thing I can offer you. I can give you Yahweh, and that's it. God is all I have. I can't give you a home. I can't give you husbands. I can't give you food. I can't give you provisions. All we have is God. And Ruth, in effect, says, that will be enough. And she clings to Naomi, and they head back. So let's pray as we venture into the close of chapter 1 and enter into chapter 2 in the book of Ruth. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how you have used your word over millennia to accomplish your purposes, to strengthen those who are called according to your will. God, thank you so much that through your word you call the people to yourself. You nourish us, you grow us, you strengthen us, you equip us by your word. And so we have the great pleasure this day to hear from you through your word. So God, would you do for us the things for which you know we need most, to hear from you, to meet with you. So God, would you be pleased to grant us illumination through the Holy Spirit to understand your word as we ought to? Would you grant us the courage and boldness to, in hearing what we hear, to not only be hearers but doers? So God, grant us, we pray, according to your grace, the kind of obedience that you demand. God, we, as we think about the calamity and we think about the suffering that Naomi went through and losing her husband and her two sons and having nothing to call her own, no land, no provision, no money, God, we can, in some way, shape, or form, we can understand her situation. And in light of that, Lord, we want to pray for what's going on around our world. There's just so much to pray for, but especially in the recent news of what happened in Christchurch, New Zealand. And, the loss of so many lives because of the sin of racism. We ask, Lord, that as we see these things, that we would be brought to prayer, and if there should be anything in us, which is similar to the reason why this has happened, that we would repent and that we would believe the gospel, that you have ransomed a people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to serve you forever. And in your kingdom, there is no superior race. And so, God, we ask that you would reign in peace over this world and that you would be faithful to the people who are suffering to comfort them. And so I ask, God, that you would remind us through these things that we live in a fallen world, but we need not fear, for Jesus has overcome the world. And in him we hope and trust. And it's in his powerful name we pray. Amen. We remember Naomi and Ruth. They're returning to Bethlehem. They're on their way. And as they make their way to Bethlehem, they finally enter into the city limits. I don't know if there was a sign or not, but nonetheless, here they come. And we see in verse 19. So the two of them on, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So they enter into Bethlehem. 
And when they enter in, the whole entire town is stirred up, probably because <laughs> Naomi's a little bit older. It's been 10 plus years. She's experienced great grief and sorrow. She's probably wearing that kind of grief and sorrow, not only in her body language and in her face, but just in her posture. Many of us who've been through suffering and sorrow of some kind know that there's a physical toll it takes on your body. So when she comes walking in, they could not believe their eyes. Could this possibly be Naomi after so many years? And of course, we don't know if it's Naomi or not. The town is probably thinking, because who is this foreigner that is accompanying her? Where's her husband? Where are her sons? They left so happy, and now they're coming back so sorrowful. And so they ask, is this Naomi? Is this pleasant Naomi? And she says, you can't call me Naomi anymore. You need to call me Mara, which means bitter. Just think about that. You can't call me a pleasant lady. You need to call me a bitter old hag because, because this is my lot. This is what God has done. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. In verse 20, verse 21, I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. And I love what she does here. She's brutally honest. And what she does here is make theological statements. And here's the reality. I love Naomi's theology. I love Naomi's theology not only because she's brutally honest, but she speaks truth. She says, in effect, three bits of truth. She understands she came to Bethlehem. She has no home, no land, no food, no money, no husband, no sons, no family, no friends. She's got nothing. And then she says, God has brought this calamity upon me. The good bit of theology here would actually do our, our, our souls a great deal of service. That's why we just sang it as well with our souls, because I have to ask the question, is that true when we sing that? And you're in the midst and throes of pain and suffering and sorrow. Can you actually just, yes, I know that this is happening to me and it's hurtful and painful, but I know that it is well. I know I'll be okay. That's not generally how people treat their sorrows and suffering and pain because generally in our culture and especially in the Christian culture, we don't like to think of God as being sovereign. So the three things that Naomi says is this, God exists, God is sovereign, and God has brought this calamity upon me. And I would say yes and amen to all three of those truths. That is good theology. That's far superior theology than the superficial sentimentality that so many people today have embraced. In their thinking, they have reduced God to being a helpless lackey, where God would intervene if he could. He would stop this if he could. He would help in this moment if he could, but God can't. He's not sovereign. God has no control over evil or suffering or pain. He can't do anything. He just sits there wringing his hands. Oh, I would help if I could. I can't. And people have embraced this theology and ignored the very fact of what Scripture teaches. People are embarrassed of God's sovereignty. And so they make excuses for God that he is impotent, that he is weak, that he doesn't know what to do, that he can't do it. And so because there's a void of control and authority and sovereignty, we place human beings in there. And so you have people 
in the midst of tragedy saying, stop talking about praying for tragedy and take it amongst yourself and fix it. And I'm thinking, what kind of power do you think you have? You actually think that you have the resources and wherewithal to end human suffering? What kind of prideful, absolutely arrogant nonsense are you willing to speak? You have just made yourself out to be more than God if you say we should not pray. Instead, let's do something about it. Brothers and sisters, that's blasphemy. And have we forgotten what Genesis 50 says? Remember when Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery and they wanted him to be harmed? And in chapter 50, verse 20, remember what Joseph says to his brothers after all of that happens? He says to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, which means you intended, you wanted, you purposed evil against me. But, he says, God meant it for good. God purposed, God intended the evil to be good and to bring many people to a place where they would be kept alive where they are today, as they are today. Have we forgotten that text? Or have we forgotten Ephesians 1.11 where the Apostle Paul says that in everything, everything serves the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything, all things working together for the counsel of his will. Have we neglected this beautiful truth? God is sovereign. God is providentially in control. And God promises through the book of Ruth as an example that every judgment can be turned into joy. Now that is hope. One of my favorite lines from any hymn I've ever sung from, is from William Cowper. And he writes this in... God works in mysterious ways. He writes this line, behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. Beautiful. Behind every frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. That's true. That's so true. We live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. We will be sinned against. We will sin. We live in a world governed by sinners who are sinning constantly. We are going to experience pain. We are going to experience sorrow. We are going to experience suffering. True, true, true. But this is also true. God is sovereign. God is in control. And the book of Ruth teaches us that God is able. God is able to turn every judgment into joy. God is able to turn every sorrow into gladness. God is able to turn every single misfortune and injustice to work for our good, his glory, and ultimately our joy. That is rich and high theology, and it's true. And so I encourage us parents, come on, let's teach our kids big theology, big God, so that they can grow up into it, rather than this nonsense of small theology that they end up growing out of. Give them the big stuff. Give them the good stuff. High school kids learning trigonometry and you're scared to talk about the Trinity with them? Oh, it might be too hard. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Trigonometry economics may get them a good job, but it will not save their soul. Give them theology. Teach them these things. 
And if we don't believe that God is providentially in control or sovereign, then, and we deny these truths, then, brothers and sisters, there is no reason to have any hope at all. You can have no hope in the midst of calamity and suffering. Because if God is not there, then all you're left, is, all, all you're left with is yourself. And obviously, you're not that powerful because you couldn't prevent what came to you anyway. And you can't control other people, and you don't have the ability to stop what's happening in Africa. You can't stop the starvation and hunger. You can't do that. You don't have what it takes. You live here in Brentwood or Antioch or something like that. You can barely make your lunch and get to work on time. You're going to stop hunger around the world? So we human beings, we end up thinking that we are able because God is unable because we don't like the thought that God is who he is. I don't like that God is sovereign. I don't like that thought. I want to be in control. I'm sovereign. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He alone is sovereign. But not only that, God is good. And he promises that everything will work out for our good and for his glory. So do not entertain the blasphemous thought that we have no God who is interested and no God who is working. God is at work. And here's the hope, verse 22. They return, Ruth and the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, and notice that they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. It was just at the right time that Yahweh visited his people and brought them food. It was just at the right time that Yahweh sends word to Naomi that he has provided for his people. It's just at the right time that Naomi hears it and heads back. It's just at the right time that they ended up in Bethlehem at just the right time, not the middle of the barley harvest and not the end of the barley harvest. They ended up at the beginning. Don't miss the details. In the midst of a calamity and sorrow, there is breaking forth from the clouds of darkness this great, piercing, penetrating light of clarity. God is working. You're here at the right time. But see, grief and sorrow cloud our vision. And Naomi is having her vision darkened by her situation. And so now the story is going to take a turn and introduce to a, us to a man named Boaz. And oh, bro, oh, brothers and sisters, if we had time at different sermon series, we could just take Ruth and just look at it, a, a biblical version or a teaching on manhood and womanhood. But we don't have that kind of time. That's not the purpose of this sermon series, though I wish kind of it would. We'll do it at some point. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. Here we go. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's. A worthy man, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. I just want to stop there, and I just want to introduce us to Boaz by telling us that he is described as a worthy man. A worthy man in Scripture means a man of valor, a man of courage, a man of strength. It's a man who has a good reputation in the community. Generally, a man who is worthy means that he's also wealthy and he's successful in business. And so you're introduced to this man named Boaz, who's not just a good guy, but he's a good guy with a good character. He's a man who is treating people fairly and equitably. He's a man of courage and valor, fortitude. He's just a good dude. Men, in this room, Boaz is your ideal outside of Jesus for what it means to be a man. Outside of Jesus. You hear my words, right? Boaz sins, right? Jesus, sinless. No comparison there. But Boaz, good dude. Verse 4, let me show you. He shows up to Bethlehem 
And uh, let's just read the whole section. This will be good. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, verse 2, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came. And she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So let me go back to verse 4 and show you. Just remember, he's a wealthy businessman. He's well-respected. And so I just imagine, put it in modern terms, he's got his business going on in Bethlehem. And so he shows up to Bethlehem from wherever he was. And to put it in modern terms, he steps out of his Tesla. (laughs) And he greets his workers. And what's amazing, he says, hey, the Lord be with you. And, of course, you see his employees not going, oh, jeez. Boaz is here. What a schmuck. You don't see anything like that. Instead, they're like, hey, hey, how's it going? The Lord bless you. And you can just see the work environment that Boaz has created because of his character. It's a very healthy work culture. It's amazing that he is the employer, is loved so much by his employee. It's reciprocated, both of them. And there's a lot in here that we could talk about work. And there's a lot of application for employers, employees. But I'll leave that to you. And so Boaz is a really quality man. And it says that Ruth asks Naomi in verse 2 if she can go glean. And remember verse 1 is a narrator's insertion of information. And it reminds us that Ruth does not know Boaz. She has no idea that he exists or who he is. And so she asks Naomi, can I go into the fields and glean And maybe I will find favor in whosoever eyes I encounter. Whatever businessman, whatever landowner I encounter, maybe I will find favor in their eyes by my work ethic. Maybe my character will win the day. Now, what in the world is gleaning? That's a good, good question. Gleaning is a part of the Mosaic law. It's something that God put into the law for the nation of Israel to make sure that the poor are not forgotten. Deuteronomy 24, 17, this is what Moses writes. You shall not pervert the justice which is due to the sojourner. And the sojourner is someone who's gone from one country to live in another country. And so we would understand them as immigrants. So do not pervert the justice which is due, which is theirs. It's owed to them, to the immigrants or to the fatherless, the orphans. Verse 19, when you reap, and here it is. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the immigrant or the sojourner, for the fatherless and for the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your your hands. And then in verse 22, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. God says, look, there's going to be the poor and the powerless among you. That's why we sang that song earlier. There's the poor and the powerless among you. And I have put a law in place to make sure that the poor are not forgotten. Every immigrant and every widow and every orphan has the right to come to the landowner's property and to glean for themselves whatever is left over after the harvest. And that is a dignifying thing. It's not a handout. 
It's not like, hey, we're just going to give stuff out to you. You don't have to do anything. It's no, the food is out there. You got to go get it. It's beautiful. It's human dignity right there. And at the same time, God puts this law in there to remind the landowners that you are not to maximize your profits at the expense of your community's good. Do not reap into the very corners of your field. You are to leave some behind on purpose to make sure that you understand that the poor need to be provided for. And then God says, remember that you were once poor. Remember that you were once enslaved in Egypt and impoverished. And so as you remember my grace for you while you were in Israel and I delivered you out of it, you should be filled with gratitude for my grace and that should result in your radical generosity. That is the biblical teaching of how we interact with God about our stuff. Everything you have, the clothes you're wearing today, I know you think that you got them on your own fortitude and ingenuity and hard work and all that kind of stuff. Baloney, God gave it to you. And God gave it to you by his grace. You're so undeserving. We're all undeserving of every car and morsel of food we eat and every clothing, piece of clothing we have in our closets. We don't deserve any of that, but by his grace, he's given it to us. Therefore, let us return that, that blessing with praise and gratitude for God. He did this for me. It's amazing. And now let's be radically generous with what we have because God gives us what we have so we could be stewards of it. And in our gratitude of receiving that, we can then say, you know what? I can give this out because it's not mine anyway. Remembering that God reminds us there's more where that came from. So be generous as an outflow of your gratitude for all that God has done by his grace. That's how it works. Which means if you're not generous, it probably means you have no concept of what grace is. And in your pride, you are refusing to humble yourself. Leviticus 19 in the love your neighbor section, this is what Moses writes. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, for the immigrant. For I am the Lord your God. God is a God of justice. And he wants his people to be radically generous and to work for the poor and the powerless, for the immigrants, the orphans, and the widows. That's how God, I mean, he said, I am the Lord, I'm commanding this. God's very heart is for these kinds of people. And then we see Ruth in verse 5, actually we start in verse 3. Ruth asks Naomi, can I go out and glean? Can I obey that law? Can I go out and glean? And Naomi says, yeah, go for it. And she goes out and it says, she happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. Right. Just so happened. It reminds us that you, God is in control of this. Acts 17 says he has determined the allotted boundaries of our dwelling place. You live in Antioch. You live in Brentwood. You live in Oakley because God has you living there. Nothing is an accident. You go to the school you go to. You have the job you have because God wanted you to have that. And so... With that knowledge, understanding God's sovereignly in control of this and providentially placed you there, be faithful. Just be faithful there. And so there's roots. It's going to the field. Just so happened, the field of Boaz, who happens to be a relative of Naomi, which will be significant in the next couple chapters. But right now we must move on. She's a sweaty mess. 
She's hardworking foreigner, but her work ethic, ethic and commitment to her mother-in-law has caused Boaz to take notice of her. And he goes, hey, who is that? And then he's told who she is. She's the faithful, committed daughter-in-law of Naomi. She's a worthy woman. She's been working here since early morning until now, except for a short rest. Ruth set out to be a woman who has a great work ethic, and she would attract eventually a man, not by her looks, but by her work. Beautiful truth. She is a worthy woman. If Boaz is a worthy man, Ruth is a worthy woman. And then they encounter one another. Boaz says to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eye be on the field that, that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. This may be, it's a beautiful thing. Boaz, being a worthy man, tells Ruth, I have, an, I have enacted a sexual harassment and sexual assault policy in my workplace. You will be safe here. Stay in my field. I have instructed the young men to protect you. Is that not applicable to today? Men, are we not seeing how beautiful it is to be a protector and a provider of women? And I know the feminists hate this kind of stuff, and they're like, oh, that's, that's just chauvinism. How dare you treat women like women? <laughs> the alternative is we Christian men should treat women like men. So I guess if we have a conflict, you know, young kids, you know, boys, we say boys will be boys in the sense that when they're young kids, if they have a conflict on the basketball court or something, what do they do? They duke it up. And, of course, you don't want the helicopter parents. You're like, no, stop. But, but we understand, like, sometimes, like, men treat men differently than they treat women. There's, there's more physicality there and all that kind of stuff. And, and so do we really want all people to be treated exactly the same? And in our culture, it's so bizarre to me, and it's so just like, what are you thinking? But then you have an athlete who beats his wife or his girlfriend, and we're going, how dare you? You should never lay hands on a woman. And then at the same time saying, don't treat women like women. Treat men and women the same. Okay, so men should never treat women a certain way, but we should never treat men and women as though they're men and women. Are you tracking with me, Golden Hills? Are you tracking with me? Treat men, our men should treat women like women, except for you should never treat women like women. That doesn't exist. No wonder why people are confused in our culture. They're just, duh. And I love Boaz because he goes, no, 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 I'm not going to be pressured by the culture to treat women inappropriately. I'm a man. I'm a worthy man. I will provide and I will protect this woman. That is my God-given responsibility and privilege. Oh, that's good. So Boaz's wealth and godliness begins to be directed towards Ruth for her well-being, and she doesn't deserve a lick of it. She doesn't deserve any of this treatment. She doesn't deserve anything. And she knows that. Look at this in verse 10. Then she falls on her face, bowing to the ground, and she says to Boaz, why have I found favor in your eyes so that you should take notice of me? And then look at this. You can see her insecurities. You can see her understanding that 
And she doesn't deserve anything since I am a foreigner. As a Moabite, she's not welcomed into the, into the assembly of God's people. And so she recognizes that this is not the behavior that she was expecting. It was what she was hoping for, but it wasn't what she was expecting. She's probably asking, is there a catch? But then you also notice that she is not entitled in any way. She's not demanding. Oh, you better give me something. Not like that. I'm a foreigner. I don't deserve anything, and you're treating me with such grace. Why are you doing this? And look at Boaz's response, verse 11. So Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Your character precedes you. You're an amazing woman, Ruth. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. We read that verse 12 and we think, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. If Ruth will behave and love, then God will bless. As if all we have to do is be obedient and then that guarantees blessing. And I see the social media stuff and I know that there's false teachers everywhere who are saying that kind of nonsense about just obey and then you get the blessing. Obey and then blessing, obey and then blessing. Don't we realize that grace always precedes obedience? Have we not realized that like... Exodus chapter 19 is when God reminded the people of Israel, I have redeemed you. And then in Exodus chapter 20, the next chapter after, then he says, here's the law, obey. You were redeemed first, so now obey. That's the same with the new covenant. That's why we talked about that. The Holy Spirit circumcises your heart, enabling you to obey. You can't obey yourself into the kingdom, but because you are part of the kingdom, you now can obey. So no, obedience does not precede blessing. And when you hear that nonsense, you need to remember that's not how the Bible teaches it. Instead, here's what we should understand about it. Ruth is not a, an, an employee of God in the sense that she does her work and then God compensates her for it. Instead, what Boaz says is, verse 12 at the end of it, you came under the wings of God to come to take refuge. In other words, you came to God to take refuge. Remember when Naomi was telling Ruth, you need to go back. I don't have anything for you. All I have is Yahweh. Ruth's response was, if I have Yahweh, I have all that I need. I got all I need. Let me ask a question. Who is glorified in that scenario when Naomi says, all I have is Yahweh to give you, and Ruth says, that's all I need? Who gets the glory? You can answer. Who gets the glory? God gets the glory. Now let's flip it around and go, obedience is what results in blessing. Who gets the glory in that? God is God. He will not give his glory to another. Therefore, the greatest way we glorify God is by understanding we do not possess what it takes, nor do we have the interfortitude to conjure up or to create anything outside of what God provides. We come to God empty-handed knowing God is our everything. That's how he gets the glory. 
So when you look at this, Boaz understands that the reason why that, that you, I'm praying for you to be blessed by God is because you've come to God. You've said nothing matters but God. God is your fortress. God is your refuge. God is your hope. And when you do that, God is pleased to provide you with what you need because you are seeking what you want and nothing else and in no one else but him alone. Oh, yeah. I love how John Piper puts it. He says this, we see that the way God works is to bless those who hope in his work, not their work for God. The reason God acts this way is that his righteousness commits him to uphold the worth of his name. So when we come to him pleading the worth of his name, not ours, he helps us. Pardon and blessing come to those who look away from their own worth to the worth of God's name. It is God's righteousness to stand by his name. As Psalm 143.11 says, For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life in your righteousness. Bring my soul out of trouble. Did you see that? For your name's sake. Ruth's like, I just want to esteem God. I want to glorify God. I want to trust God. I want God to be everything. And in that, God says, yes, that's what I want. I want you to see that with me you have all that you need. And when you trust me and the worth of my name, I will bless you. That's good. That's good. That's good theology. And it also helps Ruth to freely love her mother-in-law. Think about it. Because Ruth is receiving all that she needs and wants by hoping in God alone, she now is free to do whatever she can to love her mother-in-law because she is no longer preoccupied with her own self-interests. You get that? When you finally understand that God, if you pursue him empty-handed, will supply you, when you finally get to that place where you say, if I have God, I have all that I need. When you get to that place, it frees you to no longer be self interested and preoccupied with your own desires and wants, you can finally do what Philippians 2 says, look not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. You can finally do what Jesus says, which is you need to love others more than you love yourself, that kind of stuff. And so it frees, as Galatians 5 says, it frees us in order to love others well. And how does Ruth respond? Verse 13. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me. You have spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Ruth says to Boaz, you have spoken hesed to me. That's what the word kindly. You have spoken hesed. You have spoken covenant love to me. You have modeled for me the, the love that Yahweh has for his people. You have done this for me, even though I'm not your servant, even though I don't deserve this. She responds with gratitude. Notice she doesn't respond with, I'll pay you back. I'll make sure to do my part now that you've done yours. That will belittle Boaz. And that will revert the glory back to Ruth. And when we tell God that kind of stuff, God, if you just do this, I'll do this. God, God doesn't bargain. He's not looking to leverage his glory so you can have a little bit. So brothers and sisters, remember that. The proper response to God's grace is sheer gratitude. 
and gratitude will be evident in the generosity that we extend to others. And at mealtime, verse 14, Boaz says to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some leftover. Boaz goes beyond the letter of the law. He goes all the way to grace. This is amazing. In this culture, whenever you shared a meal, what you were doing is inviting other people into your life. You were inviting them into an intimate, meaningful fellowship. You were inviting them into basically a shared experience. That is the definition of hospitality. And so what Boaz is doing is taking this undeserving Moabite woman who has no reason to be participating in the life community of Israel, and instead he's saying, yes, I'm obeying the law by allowing you to glean in my fields, but I'm going well beyond just the law. I'm going all the way to grace. I'm going to give you even more. And what he does is he invites her into his experience of life. He invites her into fellowship with himself. He invites her into a meaningful situation. He says, come and eat with me. And that reminds us of Jesus. In Revelation 3.20, where Jesus says, if anyone hears my voice and and opens the door, I will come to him and I will eat with him and he with me. The significance of Jesus eating with his people is that he is inviting us into fellowship with himself. That because of the shed blood of Jesus on the cross and because of his resurrection, there has now been made a way open to us to enter into the presence of God and have sweet abiding fellowship with God Almighty, the one in whom we used to hate and now we've been reconciled to because of Christ. And Jesus says, come, eat. Come, all who are hungry, all who are thirsty, all who are heavy laden, come. You will find rest. You will be satisfied and your thirst will be quenched if you will just come. That's what Boaz is doing, is telling Ruth, you come. And not only that, but do you remember they were, he says, come and, and t- eat some bread and dip your morsel into the wine? Bread and wine? Does that remind you of anything? <laughs> Communion. Thank you. You were like scared. I don't want to get it wrong. <laughs> Communion. Did you see what's happening here? This is like a beautiful picture of the, of the intimacy and the meaning and significance of something like communion that we are being invited into the presence of God to have fellowship with him, but not just him, fellowship with each other. Oh, it's a beautiful picture where people of all walks of life, Ruth, woman, Boaz, man, Ruth, Moabite, Gentile, Boaz, Israelite, Jews and Gentiles, male, female, slave or free are together. Oh, that's good. In verse 15, he says, or it says, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. Also pull out some of, from the bundles for her and leave it to her to glean, and do not rebuke her. In other words, see that woman right there? She's allowed, according to the law, to glean in the field and pick up whatever's left over. But I want you instead to intentionally pull out some of what you have harvested and give it to her. I don't want her just to have gleanings. I want her to have some of the harvest. All the way from law to grace. Boaz just gives her grace. People, for whatever reason, think that grace leads people to complacency and entitlement. And I think in part that's true. The book of Jude 
Uh, it reminds us that sometimes people take the grace of God and they use it as a license for immorality. The idea that, oh, since God forgives and God has grace, I'll send my brains out and I'll ask for forgiveness tomorrow. You can't do that if you actually know grace. If you actually know what grace is, that's not how you will live. That's why Romans 6.1 says what it says. The Apostle Paul said, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. That's ridiculous. Grace is supposed to produce gratitude, which is supposed to produce generosity. And the truth of that is made evident in the person of Boaz. God has given me this harvest. I'm grateful for the harvest. I will give it. And look what happens to Ruth. Does she become complacent and go, oh, shoot, I, yeah, I ate some bread. I dipped it in the wine. I'm, I'm able to drink the water. I'm able to hang out with Boaz. I'm just going to kick my feet up. Nope. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Grace is not what made her complacent. The grace of Boaz is what empowered her to obedience. That's beautiful. It just reminds us of Jesus so much, who has called us into fellowship with himself. Undeserving, poor, and powerless people are invited into fellowship with God. That is absolutely beautiful. The proper response to such grace and such an invitation is overwhelming gratitude evidenced by what Ruth did and what Boaz does. Radical generosity, radical hospitality, and radical love. That is what God wants for his church. That we love because we have first been loved. We forgive because we have first been forgiven. And we give grace because we have been recipients of grace. So, Father, would you do that for us? Would you cause within us to become a people who are overwhelmed by your grace and by your love and how you've called a people so undeserving to yourself and you have ransomed them. You have reconciled us. You have redeemed us. And, God, what you ask for now is just a response of sheer gratitude. And God, as we contemplate your grace and as the emotion and the thoughts of gratitude well up inside of us, I pray that you would bring it to fruition, that we would become the kind of people that Boaz and Ruth modeled, but ultimately that is ours in Christ Jesus, that we are radically loving, radically generous, radically hospitable people for your glory, for the good of our neighbors, and for our joy.